0: Uh, if you've got a Bible on you, why don't you grab it? If not, uh, words will appear behind me on the screen. Uh, we've been walking through Acts for the last little while, so we're still in Acts for at least a couple more weeks before we change things up a little bit and look at some other bits and pieces. Uh, so we're in Acts 8 this morning. We're going to be reading from uh, verse 4 right through to verse 25, and this is God's Word. Those who had been scattered preached the Word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you. Because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. And we thank God for his word that still speaks to us today. So today, right, we bridge into the next section in the book of Acts, okay? We've been trying to break it down into manageable chunks of this kind of giant book that has an awful lot going on, okay? Every kind of section is a sermon in a sense. There's so much happening throughout the entire book of Acts. The first section that we kind of dealt with over five sessions or so was all about what was happening at home in Jerusalem. And this section, as we bridge into the next bit, is what happens as the church comes alive in the surrounding areas, neighbors, if you like, to Jerusalem where so much has been going on. This church, this new church has a mandate. It has received the Holy Spirit. It has encountered the first believers. It has had its first miracles, first persecution. And last week, we talked about it having its first martyr. And now it's coming alive elsewhere. But as we make our first stop, if you like, on the kind of tour of the things that are going to go on around it, okay, the first part of it isn't just anywhere that the church is coming alive, it's somewhere, it's Samaria. I've grown up in and around Belfast my whole life, and uh, Belfast is a place where the religious political divisions have played out in all too obvious Ways As a Protestant growing up in North Belfast, uh, I was just all too aware through most of my childhood life, teenage life and adult life, that there was this whole other section of people around me, often living next door, often sitting next to me on buses, who were kind of living life in parallel to mine, but never did the two ever really touch from separate schooling to recognizing how they pronounce their H differently than me to parts of the city that I just never went to. I first went to the Falls Road in West Belfast when I was 20 years old to a practice space that we were renting to play music in. Side note, while I was on my way there, a man did try to sell me a laptop out of a car window, right? So as if I couldn't have felt any more like I was on another planet, that happens as I'm walking to the practice space first time I was ever in West Belfast when I was 20 years old, to meeting people at Queen's from Derry who told me that I was the first prod they'd ever properly met, the school bus windows being smashed on the way home to school, to still having a scar on my shoulder for being hit with a brick while walking home from school one day, and summers in North Belfast, right, where we were ahead of the curve, right? We did lockdown before lockdown was a thing. In other words, there was some sort of riot happening at every interface junction in and out of Belfast for lots of summers in and around the time that the drum stuff was going on. You couldn't get in or out. Life lived In parallel, life divided. I did RE at GCSE at school, right? I know what you're thinking, right? That was a right DOS, wasn't it? Sorry, RE teachers, right? But uh, it sounds great, doesn't it? It sounds fun until every time, you know, the teacher would ask something and nobody would answer. He would say, maybe David would like to answer, given you're a minister's son and all that, right? Play that out for several years, and you're like, this is not fun anymore. Anyway, as part of our class, there was a day where we kind of got a chance to do like a cross-community type thing. And so as part of our RE class, we had an opportunity uh, as somebody from a prod background uh, to go to a Catholic mass service, okay? So we're all rounded up in the minibus. It's like several hours. Hours out of school, you know everyone signs up for that, right? You don't quite know what you're getting into, but we're all off to Catholic Mass, right? And I end up sitting next to this guy from like a really tight, North Belfast, broad background, okay? And I don't know how I end up sitting next to him, but I do, right? The first 10 minutes of our time in this kind of, this Catholic church, right? He spends the first five minutes being like, Mass! You stroked me. If I would known I was coming to this, I would never have signed up, right? So he protests for the first five minutes. Then for the next kind of 15 minutes, he keeps telling everyone around him, don't tell anyone I'm here. If they find out I'm here, I'm dead, right? And you're like, who's going to kill you? Like, what is going on, right? So he's like, don't tell anyone. And then the last 15 minutes, he spends with his blazer up over his head, exclaiming to all of us around us, they're trying to turn me, Right? Strange days, early 2000s in North Belfast. And as funny as some of that sounds, right? As funny as lots of the stories that we have are, what they're really pointing to in the heart of our culture here is a division so very deep and still so very alive today. The sort of thing that we watched on, right? On a level of things like apartheid in South Africa and the the division between Israel and Palestine that we're watching play out on our screens right now. I say that because very often we who lived here maybe didn't see it in the fullness of what it was because it was so close. We just took it as part of our way of life, didn't we? I say that today, I get into that today because we're in Samaria and it was exactly the same deeply divided, walls up. That's the space we need to inhabit whenever we think about what we're reading today, a world as divided as ours. And yet, even with the walls up, the church comes alive. What are we going to take from this today, right? The church alive in a divided culture. Well, I, I probably have two things I want to say. I want us to think of two features and see two features of that church in this moment, right? And it's this: voice and intimacy. Voice and intimacy. The first one of those is voice. And I wonder uh, if you've ever had the experience, right, of setting out to do one thing and finding that in the end you get quite the opposite, right? Like setting out, you mean well, you mean to do something, but actually what you get, the results are the opposite. I say I was going to start that by saying as a parent, but really that's 90% of parenting, right? Like setting out to do something but getting quite the opposite, right? As a parent, we find this happens a lot, right? Actually, with Elle, we found out that if we kind of set hard boundaries or have hard lines, she is like 100% more likely to do her very best to get over whatever the line is that we set. Like the thing, that thing that happens whenever your kids are cracking you up and you come downstairs and you start shouting at them to calm down, right? How ridiculous is that when you think about it? Because all you get are kids shouting back at you then. Or that thing that happens when you try to warn somebody that there's like a cup of tea next to their foot or their elbow and they, they like reactionary go, what was that? And then they knock it down, right? That happens all the time. Or most dangerous of them all coming into the house on a Friday evening after work and saying something along the lines of, we are absolutely not getting a takeaway tonight, right? But what you've just done is sown the idea of a takeaway. And so by about eight o'clock you cave and you order the Indian food that you really wanted same one thing getting quite the opposite as a result and that's pretty much the context for what's going on here that's pretty much exactly what's going on you see verse 3 in the passage just before the, what we got to today right verse 3 says this but Saul began to destroy the church going from house to house he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison it's pretty clear what's going on here right every attempt is being made to stamp out the first church right like cut it off at the root before this thing spreads before it starts to go beyond here right it's pretty obvious what what's happening it's pretty obvious what they're trying to do then verse 4 those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went set out to do one thing and they got entirely the opposite didn't they like spreading was the last thing that the religious and political leaders expected when they started persecuting the church but that's what they got and it strikes me straight away, right, that the persecution comes, it's taken place right among God's people, right? It's surreal to think that of that time, right amongst the religious of the time, that's where it's coming from. That's who Saul was. That's what he was embedded in, right? How surreal is that when you think about it? Maybe that's not surreal whenever you see the criticism and all the rest that tends to come inside the life of the church from one section toward another. And from the picture of those early verses in Acts 8, the reality is that some disciples seem to be in life-threatening danger, carted off to prison, killed even, whilst others seem to be spared. Why? Why? Why is that? Why is it that the scattering, the persecution, the suffering, the weights we have to bear of disciples of Jesus always seem to be dished out unevenly? Why is that? That question is still with us now, right? Whether it's yourself or as you walk through some stuff with somebody else, wondering why other people seem to be on the receiving end of things that others don't. I'm not sure that we will ever have an answer for that. But one thing is for sure of this part of the passage, right? That for reasons we might never understand, the faith of some disciples is seen as a threat to the social order, while the faith of others may be seen as too inconsequential to merit attention or so closely aligned to the old world and the old way of doing things that perhaps perhaps their lives were indistinguishable from it. Some get persecuted, some don't. So the apostles stay where they are in Jerusalem, right? That's what it says. And this young church, this first church is scattered. And the astonishing thing about it, right, is that persecution becomes proclamation. What starts as persecution results in proclamation. Those words of verse four, again, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. In the scattering, the church alive finds its voice. In the scattering, the church of life finds its voice, right? And somehow these followers of Jesus have such confidence in the way of Jesus and its truth and power to change lives and circumstances that they just simply couldn't help themselves, right? This is not that thing that we kind of love in the church, right? A quiet confidence, right? We love that, don't we? Like, people are really quiet, really confident, but they keep it to themselves, right? This is like Ronaldo-level confidence, right? This is so confident that I'm going to talk about it, right? That's where they are. It's an astonishing confidence in the message that had got them scattered in the first place, right? I mean, just think about that. The thing that had got them scattered was the thing that they now can't help themselves talk about. Somehow, The first church knew that coming alive meant that the call to be faithful to the way of Jesus meant living full of faith. Even if that meant living that way in Samaria. And the reality was that Jews hated Samaritans, right? You know, the good Samaritan and all that story, right? They're from Samaria. That's where that comes from. They hated each other. In their history, right, quick whip round, right? At a point, the monarchy of 12 tribes broke up, 10 tribes defected, making Samaria and their capital, leaving two tribes loyal to Jerusalem. And then later, Samaria gets captured by the Assyrians, and they cart off thousands of people, right? Only for Samaria to then get repopulated by foreigners. And then eventually, in the fourth century, they build their own rival temple on Mount Gerizim to rival Israel's on Mount Zion. They hated them, right? They viewed them as heretics, and they viewed them as those who had defected. For a thousand years, they had been hated by Jews, Probably most easily summed up in John's words in John 4.9 when he wrote this, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. There it is, right? That's as simple as it gets. We just don't associate with them. We have nothing to do with them. A thousand years of division and the first place we have a record of the church getting scattered to is Samaria. How incredible is that? And it's Philip that does it. These are these verses, verse five to eight. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Philip was another Hellenistic Jew, right? We talked about Stephen last week. He was one of these. So was Philip. He lived kind of two worlds life, right? He kind of lived with Jewish tradition, but also with Greek culture. And once again, we see that miracles seem to follow what he's doing, what he's saying as the message of Jesus is taught. Once again, Philip is not an apostle. Incredible that miracles are following those who aren't apostles already, right? He's carrying what they carried. And it's happening in the city, right? I love that the passage does kind of a colloquial Northern Irishism in the passage, right? By that it says, they went down to the city. Actually, it was north, right? Joy will often say to me, "Will we go down home. I'm like, no, we don't go down home. You live northerly. We go up home, right? But we do that sort of thing all the time, don't we? So the passage has a Northern Irishism in it, and I love it, right? They go down to the city, but what we know is that as lies are changed, the city becomes a place of joy, right? That's what the passage tells us. And so what happens next? Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But... When they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. Philip encounters Simon. We'll get to Simon in a little minute, right? We'll not get necessarily into him. We'll get into him in a second, okay? But for now, what's important to know is that this is not some sort of contest of par, right? This is not some par struggle an arm wrestle between one par and another for the hearts and minds of the city, right? That's not really what's going on. Really, it's more about the destination of where they point people. Verse 10 and 11 make it perfectly clear that Philip was pointing them to him. He was the end goal. His name, his fame, his power, what he could do, but not Philip. When they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. See, Philip is pointing away from himself. Simon pointing at himself, Philip pointing away, finding his voice to speak of Jesus. And that's where the conversions happen, right? That's what the passage goes on to say. People find faith as Philip talks to them about Jesus and the kingdom of God. And Philip's willingness to preach Jesus to the Samaritans is pretty incredible, really, because they hadn't really even been particularly visible by Jesus' disciples before. In fact, in Luke nine fifty three, when the Samaritans don't welcome Jesus, the disciples want to call down fire from heaven and destroy them all, right? So that's the same writer talking about how the disciples think about the Samaritans in Luke 9, writes about them now in Acts 8, and they talk about how Philip wants to tell them about Jesus. Philip wants them to hear, come and hear, come and be part of what Jesus has done, come and belong to what Jesus is doing. This is where what we hear and say, love the world, right? We say that all the time in the church, right? Pattern on, for God so loved the world. We very often will say that too, We do our best to love the world, right? But it's so obviously not the same as seeking God's desire for people. Philip spoke Jesus with the heart of one who saw past the boundaries to God's desire for people. And so he finds his voice. Men and women like Philip, they share Jesus with those who may as well be from another planet. Yet they do. And the result is that people come to know him. You know, as a community uh, during the week, we were wrestling with how Acts is, is one of those books where in many ways it isn't concerned with just changing behavior, right? We were kind of contrasting it very often with reading some of Paul's letters, which might talk about behaviors that were alive in the church. And it's very easy, you know, as a small group, when you sit down to go, well, I suppose I probably shouldn't gossip anymore, or, you know, I shouldn't do this, or I shouldn't do that. But in many ways, Acts doesn't do that, right? Acts doesn't really give you that option. It's concerned with transforming our whole worldview. It's like we can't just set it aside as a story. We can't just relegate it as some part of history. It's shaping how we see the world that we're in and the possibility of what following Jesus in that world might mean. And this passage is a reminder to me that all the old world, the old way of life needs is my silence. All it needs is for me to be quiet. It just needs me to do nothing. It would have been so very reasonable, given all they had experienced, suffered, and known for people like Philip to have been silent in the scattering, wouldn't it? After all, they'd known. It would have been the most easy thing in the world to just, like, just go quietly, right? You're in Samaria. They don't like you. You don't like them. Just, just be quiet. Just settle in. Settle down. Don't say anything. Don't rock the boat, right? You would have understood that, wouldn't you? If that's you, you would have got that. But Jesus and the church alive don't do that, do they? They couldn't do that. See, they'd find their voice. And you know what? It's incredible that it's Philip who speaks in these moments because he was a Hellenistic Jew. And as far as Jerusalem is concerned, he's kind of an outsider, right? He's not really, truly one of them. But here's the thing. It's likely if the apostles had arrived and started to speak that they would just have been rejected, right? You're just Jews. We don't want to hear from you. What I'm saying is that though Philip was an outsider, he was uniquely equipped to minister to the Samaritans. And that's just it, isn't it? So often I find that your voice is where your weakness is. It's not where your strength is. So often your voice is where your vulnerability is. It's where the space that God has done something and moved in your life, it's in that space is really, truly where your voice is. It draws people to Jesus, not to us. Because our strength very often just draws people to us, doesn't it? But our weakness draws people to Jesus. You know, when I think about our world today, Often it feels like the greatest distance and division present as the church, right, between us, the church, and the world is not necessarily the Protestant-Catholic divide of old. I'm not belittling that or saying that that is still not present. It still very definitely is, and we still very definitely need to seek reconciliation and restoration of that huge rift in our society. That is there, right? But it feels in this moment like we, the church, are most divided from culture or secularism, right? Like that's what you hear a lot, the culture and the church, right? We're on different tracks. We're parallel. We never cross, right? It feels like the most us and them interface of the world in which we live in today, doesn't it? And very often it feels like it's a divide that we just can't cross, doesn't it? Feels relatively hopeless at times. Lots of people tend to like to send me statistics about how the church is more or less declining all around the world. And, you know, it's not actually truly converting people to Jesus, it's just taking people from one church to another. We're not actually making any ground in the world in which we live. And then this week, I think this was my favorite thing on Twitter, right? This thing was my favorite. Yes. Thank you. This is the press statement uh, from the Atheist Society of Kenya, and I absolutely love this middle section of text, right? This is what it says. This evening, regretfully, the secretary of the Atheists in Kenya Society, Mr. Seth Mathiga, informed me that he has made the decision to resign from his position as secretary of the society. Seth's reason for resigning is that he has found Jesus Christ, and it is no longer interested in promoting atheism in Kenya. We wish Seth all the best in his newfound relationship with Jesus Christ. And thank him for having served the society with dedication over the last one and a half years. How incredible is that? I can no longer be president of the atheist or secretary of the Atheist Society because I find Jesus. You know, bridging the gap, the us versus them of the world that we so often feel, it needs us to point to Jesus and not to ourselves. Needs us to find our voice, right? And it's probably not on Facebook. I'm just going to say that, right? We don't need more voices on Facebook. Please, no more voices on Facebook, right? It needs to be real life. This is where our worldview, like I was saying last week, matters. This is where we believe what the Bible says is possible, or we believe what our world says, where we believe that we who often feel so scattered, it turns out, could be sent where the scattered become sent. The church alive in a divided world, right? First of all, it found its voice. But secondly, its intimacy. Voice and intimacy. So we come to Simon, right? And the reality is that he was someone who had a following, okay? He was someone who had demonstrated power in Samaria at that time. In fact, what it's saying in verse 10 about him, that this man is rightly called the great power of God, right? It's essentially saying that Simon regarded himself and came to be regarded as some kind of a representation of God, right? He was like some kind of God to them because of the kind of acts of power that they saw when he was around, right? And then he meets Jesus, much like our atheist friend. He meets Jesus through Philip, seeing what the power of God does. He gets caught up in what God is doing. But the problem is that at the heart, he's still addicted to power. It's really power that makes him tick. You see, he recognizes that there is a power at work that's greater than his, but he just wants the power and not the source. In many ways, he's around the fringe, isn't he, right? He's like just outside the center of what God is doing. One commentator writes this, having some measure of control over people and being able to draw a crowd is the closest thing to being with God without God's help. Having power and attention, influence and regard is the closest thing to sensing God's will without knowing the divine will. Simon is not the quintessential prideful person. He is the ordinary power broker in this world who has learned to live in the substitutes for life with God. There it is. What an incredible quote. He's just the ordinary power broker. He's learned to live in the substitutes for life with God. He longs for power and attention, and he sees what happens as Philip preaches, and he has some kind of faith experience, right? We'll not get into really how real was it, or was it actually a faith experience? Did he genuinely come to... We'll not get into all that, because in lots of ways, we can't know... But what we do know is that then the apostles arrive, right? That's what happens next. And really they're here because of the magnitude of what's going on. Samaritans are following Jesus, right? This is a massive thing. The apostles arrive to see it. They want to add their name and their weight to what is going on. This is an unprecedented situation. And so it demanded an exceptional response. So they leave Jerusalem. They come here. And the apostles needed to demonstrate to all of the world, especially those back in Jerusalem, that this was the real thing, right? Like it was really happening, that it was true. Because there was this real danger that they wouldn't believe in and they wouldn't accept the Samaritans either. Right at the start, it just would have been another us versus them. Here was the question. The gospel had been welcomed by Samaritans, but would the Samaritans be welcomed by the Jews? So the apostles show up. That's what they're there for. They're there to kind of show that this is real, to report back and They pray for the Holy Spirit to come, right? Here's what's next. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come in any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. He said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. They pray for the Holy Spirit to come. And as Simon takes one look at what happens next, he thinks, I want that. Whatever that is, I want that. And let's be honest with ourselves, right? Right? In moments where we see a leader move in the spiritual gifts, right, like somebody who's really prophetic or whatever, just about all of us look at them and think, I want that too, don't we? Simon was addicted to power. And he takes one look at Philip and, what, and the apostles and what happens next, and he wants the power, but he doesn't want the source. And Peter sees right through it. This is what it says, Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Peter rebukes him and at the heart of it is it's not about the par right it's not about the par simon i know that that's what you want but it's not about the par why because par was the currency of his life wasn't it par was the currency it's what makes it easy to understand about why he offered money, right? He offered one form of currency for another form of currency in order to get the power. It's just currency to him. And when you look at Simon and Philip in those opening verses, all that his power had bought him was amazement. It was just amazement, wasn't it? They were amazed at what happened whenever he demonstrated whatever power that he had. But Philip God's power had led to belief. Simon's bottom amusement. God's brought belief. And here's the thing, right? Here's the warning to us all. It's so very easy to treat our faith and this community as a utility, isn't it? It's so very easy to treat our faith and treat this place as some form of utility, like we get from it what we need and what we want according to the currency that we value. So if it's power, we seek out the power. If it's attention, we want the attention. If it's control, we try and take control. If it's acceptance, we just seek out acceptance in the community of the church. If it's tradition, then it's tradition. If it's religion, then it's religion. We just treat our faith and we treat the Christian community as an opportunity for utility. You see, Simon has stood right at the center of a move of God into a place the Jews had only really seen with borders. He's right in the middle of things and yet he's just on the outside, isn't he? Because all he sees is the power. In the end of the day, give me this power is so very different from give me Jesus, isn't it? Give me attention is so very different from give me Jesus. Give me acceptance is so very different from give me Jesus. Give me control is so very different from give me Jesus. And it's so easily every one of us, isn't it? Stand on the fringes, even if we might physically be right in the middle, to be on the fringes, close to the intimate space of what God is doing and saying and how He's moving, and see only what we want to get out of it. And yet, the Church Alive was after the intimate space. How do I know? Because as Peter rebukes Simon, he points him to the intimate space of repentance and prayer. He's telling him to step into the intimate space, out of the fringes, out of just the stuff that you want. Step into the intimate space. Here's the thing. I say that... Because that is how intimacy is grown. We've been doing the marriage prep course over the last five weeks or so, and we've been reflecting, right, over the last number of weeks of how in a marriage intimacy isn't created, never created by my desire to change the other people, right? You never get intimacy if your desire is to change the other, right? Anybody who's married will know that, right? If I set myself out, I'm going to do my very best to change that person, right? You won't get it. What you'll very often get is trouble, right? But if you set out to change the other person, what you do not get is intimacy. It starts with my heart to change. It starts with my heart to repent. Intimacy starts as I change not as they do and here's the thing right Peter tells Simon step into the intimate space repent of the stuff that's in your life draw close to Jesus make the first move in that sense repent ask him to come in your life and here's the thing Simon's first response isn't exactly positive right Peter tells him to pray, and yet he doesn't. This is what it says in verse 24. Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me, right? He asked Peter to pray for him when Peter was told him to pray. And not so that he could enter the intimate space, but so that nothing bad would happen to him, right? Those are not the same things. He can't even use his own words. Intimacy has our own language, doesn't it? It needs the sharing of ourself, right? I can't love and communicate love well to joy through just quoting other people's words, right? That doesn't work, right? I can't sit down and say, Joy, lights will guide you home and ignite your bones, but I will try to fix you. Right? Like it's not going to work, right? Right? It's just going to be like, what are you smoking? Get away from me, you weirdo, right? It might sound nice to quote poetry or songs or whatever to someone you love at some points, but when it gets down to the nitty-gritty of what intimacy means, it needs your own words. It needs your own language. It needs your own heart. Or sooner or later, it's not going to work. You're just going to stay on the fringes, just outside the intimate space. But here's the encouragement, right? If you find yourself today being honest with yourself, just outside the intimate space of relationship with God, right? Not even sure what your own words to God sound like today. Peter's invitation to Simon to change was an invitation for him to move from the fringes, to move from just outside, always around what God is doing, to the intimate space through repentance and prayer of what God is doing. Come into the intimate space. You know, when I reflect on my life and my relationship with joy, the most intimate, connected, accepted, known, and secure that I have been has been through the admission of my own faults and flaws. My weaknesses, my failure, when I've stuffed it up, is where the most intimate, most secure space is. It's been met with the acceptance of one who loves me and loves me enough not to let me stay there, loves me enough to expect that I will change. That's the intimate space. That's the power of it. How incredible is that? In a world that says cancel, drop, leave, they don't meet your needs. love. And the intimate space says, come close. You're safe here. You're secure. Move closer to me.